Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Making Allocation Decisions Across Emerging Markets, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Curtis Butler, Client Portfolio Manager, Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Equities Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And with me today is Richard Titherington, Chief Investment Officer of the Emerging Market and Asia-Pacific Equities Team, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. It's great to be here. Richard, Emerging Markets Investor is a very broad mandate, spanning nearly all the continents and presenting a wide variety of opportunities and risks. How do you decide where to invest? That's a very good question, Curtis. I mean, as you say, the emerging market universe is probably the broadest of any equity asset class. We span the world. And I think the way to start thinking about that is really from a top-down perspective, particularly when we think about what are the macro issues that impact emerging markets. And when we think about macro, I'm really thinking about two key things. One is currency, because when you think about the past of investing in emerging markets, what's really been problematic has been currency volatility. As I'm sure you know, we've been through many crises in the last 30 years. So the currency backdrop is very important. And then the second key issue is at the country level, particularly when we're thinking about economic cycles and country valuations. So my starting point is always, where are we from a currency perspective and what countries appear in the most attractive position? Obviously, you have a team behind you that's supporting you in the research and developing ideas and recommendations. Can you tell us about that team? One of the benefits of being part of JP Morgan Asset Management is that we have the ability to have a very large team of uh, analysts and, and portfolio managers to support me. We have a team of over 100 people. We cover the entire emerging market universe, both from a bottom-up country standpoint, an industry sector standpoint, and also from a top-down macroeconomic standpoint. So it's a pretty comprehensive coverage of the entire asset class. How important is it to have that much coverage, to have such a large dedicated team for emerging markets? Well, as you said at the beginning, it's a huge universe, and it's a universe that's expanded dramatically over my career. And I think the ability to have a genuinely comprehensive coverage of the asset class is really important. Does your team cover just emerging markets or do you also look at frontier? And we know, as you mentioned, the benchmark keeps changing and growing. Are you prepared for those changes? What is your team doing to stay ahead of that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we cover the entire emerging market universe, including frontier countries. We've been investing in Vietnam for more than a decade. We've built up our expertise in looking at markets like Saudi Arabia. We've been an investor in Argentina and Latin America for a very long time. So yeah, when I talk about comprehensive coverage of emerging markets, I really mean the entire universe. Your own investment process, as you mentioned, country is an extremely important part in currency. So am I to understand that when you are building your portfolio, country is your first consideration? Yeah, we start with thinking about countries and currencies because, as I said earlier on, if you look back at the history of investing in emerging markets, it's really been 
currency risk and country risk, which has been the biggest problem for investors. If you think back to the Asian crisis, a dollar investor lost 90% of his money because of currency weakness. So yeah, that's my starting point. So you mentioned that your starting point is country allocation. How do you build a portfolio from that? Well, as I mentioned earlier on, I'm very fortunate to be supported by a very broad range of research analysts, both sector and country orientated. So once we've decided overall portfolio allocation, i.e. where are the countries that we think are most attractive, we then drill down to the individual stock level and think in terms of where do we see the most attractive opportunities. And we think in terms of what we call an expected return framework, by which I mean we're taking a long-term view at the bottom-up company level, thinking in terms of where do we see this company being in five years' time? And what I want to look for is companies with the highest possible five-year expected return. So that's my starting point from an investment standpoint. Shifting gears to markets, Richard. EM has recovered significantly over the past 18 months after a five-year bear market. This reflects a pretty important turnaround in fundamentals. What markets or themes have you been favoring over this period? Well, as you say, it's been a very tough period for emerging markets for the last five years. And and this is really the first year where we've seen a significant turnaround. And that turnaround has really been driven by um, a pickup in corporate profitability. So what we've been looking for is companies with positive profit momentum. And we found those in a number of different places. Two areas that I would highlight. One is the well-known areas of Chinese internet, where you've seen a very strong pickup in profitability and growth. I mean, the well-known names, Tencent, Alibaba, JD.com, have really benefited from the stabilization and and pickup in domestic consumption in China. The other key area, which is also in in China, uh, has been the whole financial sector. Um, We've thought for a long time that the insurance industry is a secular growth industry in China. It suffered um, very badly in 2015 and the first half of 2016 because a lot of investors perceived the insurance companies as just being kind of geared plays on the A-share market, and the A-share market performed poorly. But actually, we see it as a secular growth story, and that's turned around significantly in 2017 on the back of partly a pickup in the A-share market, but also more strongly deeper penetration of insurance products into the Chinese market, which still has probably the lowest penetration rate for insurance of any major market in the world. The third theme that we've picked up on has been the recovery in commodity prices. And in fact, despite a lot of pessimism at the beginning of the year, you've seen the steel industry do very well in 2017 on the back of restriction in supply in China and a more benign global economic outlook. So those have been three key themes that have been driving performance this year. And what do you see as the main risks facing emerging markets and emerging markets investors? I talked right at the beginning of our conversation about the importance of currency. And generally speaking, emerging market equities perform well 
when the US dollar is stable or declining. And that's been the environment of the last six months, which has been a bit of a surprise to many investors. So clearly, what is of most concern to me is if we go into an environment where for some reason the dollar rallies very sharply. Now, that could be because the global economy goes back into recession. Uh, It could be due to geopolitical risk, or it could be because we see a greater economic stimulus coming through in the US economy and more optimism about the future of the US economy. Those are the three things that would be most problematic from an emerging market investor standpoint. You mentioned the multi-year bear market, emerging markets suffered. That was also a time when developed markets, particularly the US, were rallying sharply and doing very well. Do you see a risk of the aging or maturing developed markets bull market on emerging markets? And how do you think they would fare in the event of a good-sized correction in the U.S.? I've been investing in emerging markets for more than 25 years. And one of the things I've learned over that period is that it's a very cyclical and volatile asset class. And generally speaking, the cycles are quite long-lasting. So as you mentioned, we had a five, six-year bear market. We've had one year of a bull market in emerging markets. And I think that the bigger risk to that story is a reversal in the direction of the dollar rather than the direction of developed market equities per se. And in fact, to a certain extent, to the extent that investors think U.S. equities are expensive and start to reduce exposure there and consequently increase exposure elsewhere, that would actually be a positive for the emerging market asset class. So my base case is that we're in the early stages of an economic upswing for emerging markets. And consequently, I think the outlook on a two to three year view for emerging market equities is pretty positive. But as I say, there's always risk to that because it is a volatile asset class. And how are you thinking about other risks such as geopolitics, North Korea, or policy risk related, for example, to trade actions, trade disputes with China? As we went into this year, there was a lot of concern, I think, around the issue of protectionism. I think that that concern has dissipated over the last six to eight months, as it appears that you're less likely to see a ratcheting up of tension between the US and China. At the same time, however, you have seen a very obvious ratcheting up of tension between the US and North Korea. That clearly has to be a concern, although it has to be said that financial markets don't seem to rate that as a very high probability. But One of the scenarios in which the US dollar would rise very sharply would be if we went into a period of risk aversion caused by geopolitics and the Korean situation deteriorating. That's certainly not our base case. When I talk to people on the ground in Korea, that doesn't seem to be their base case either. But one mustn't totally underestimate the possibility that that could have a negative outcome. You mentioned some pretty favorable trends in China and some exposures that your team has. 
it's been one of the best performing markets since markets started rallying, as you suggested, last year, after being the primary source of concern and a headline almost every day about the China risk. How are you looking at that risk today? I think that investors in the West have been very pessimistic on the outlook for China for several years. I've always been more of an optimist about the outlook for China than perhaps the consensus. Not because I see China booming and going back to 10% growth rates as it did in the past, but I think the Chinese economy is changing in a very positive way and becoming much more consumer-orientated, which is actually much more stable and a better base for growth than the fixed asset investment-driven booms of the last decade. So I think that the Chinese economy, despite the pessimism that you often read about the build-up in debt, looks much more stable than it has for a considerable period of time. But clearly, you know, there is always risk. Debt continues to grow. In China, that's the thing that I think is most concerning about the Chinese economy right now. But in broad terms, as long as we think that the Chinese economy is stable, it doesn't need to go back to, as I say, 7 or 8% growth. If it grows between 5 and 6%, then these secular forces of growing consumption, which have been embodied by the internet companies over the last, certainly the last 18 months, I think provides a very sound platform for the rest of emerging markets. And what thoughts can you share on China A shares, which are being introduced into the MSCI index in 2018? The A share market, although it's actually performed poorly over the last couple of years and hasn't really participated in the bull market that you've seen across emerging markets, clearly is the next big thing in emerging market investing. Chinese capital markets in general are enormously important for the future. China is the one place which has the ability to rival the US in terms of the size and depth of its capital markets. And the A share market is going to be very large going forward. We've been building up our expertise there for several years already. We're going to continue investing in our expertise in the China A share market. We'll put people on the ground in Shanghai. And I think that when you look at where do emerging markets go over the next five, 10 years, China is going to be the dominant part of that story. And your team are already investing in China A shares? We've been investing in China A shares for over a decade and we've continued to build up our expertise there. We have A-share exposure across our emerging market platform, yeah. So, Richard, we've heard a lot about China. What are some thoughts about the rest of emerging markets? Well, as we mentioned earlier on, there is a lot more to emerging markets than just China. And certainly, we do see some good opportunities elsewhere. I would particularly highlight Brazil, which... People have been very pessimistic about for a long time. But actually, you know, the Brazilian economy has started to stabilize. I think the political crisis has generally been overestimated by investors. And certainly when we saw the very significant sell-off in the currency that happened at the time of the allegations made against the Brazilian president, that was very obviously from our standpoint a buying opportunity. So the Brazilian economy is stabilizing and starting to pick up. 
Brazilian equities have rallied quite strongly, but I think that they can continue to perform well for the rest of the year. The other market, which is a little bit more controversial and has been a big underperformer this year compared to the rest of emerging markets, has been Russia. Russia, having been very much a pariah at the end of 2014 and then rallied very strongly through 2015 and 2016, has really missed out on the emerging market rally in 2017. And Russian equities are looking as cheap as they have done for a long time. So that's a little bit more controversial. But I think when we think about opportunities outside China, those two stand out. The other places that have done well, and we still see some opportunities in is Korea. The Korean market, despite the geopolitical overhang, is a big beneficiary of the pickup in the global economy. You're seeing well-known Korean companies, the likes of Samsung Electronics and SK Hynix, which is a chip producer, big beneficiaries of what's been going on in the whole smartphone industry. And generally speaking, Korea is a market that does well when the global economy is picking up. And that's very much been the case this year. Another thing we hear a lot about Korea, besides the North Korea risk, is that there may be a change of foot in terms of corporate governance something South Korea has not been known for in the past, but we may be seeing positive movement on that front. Can you tell us what you're thinking and seeing with respect to Korea's corporate governance? Well, the new government has come in on a mandate to make changes to the Chaebol system. Many Korean governments have come in with similar mandates, and so I'm reluctant to say it's different this time. But clearly, there is greater pressure on the Chaebol system than there has been in the past. And frankly speaking, it doesn't take very much in order to see a significant re-rating. Korea has traded what has been known as the Korea discount for a long time, largely due to concerns about corporate governance. Fairly minor changes in corporate governance in terms of increasing payout ratios and and greater transparency around capital allocation could have a very significant impact in re-rating the Korean market. That's certainly a possibility. And another major market we haven't yet addressed is India. What are your thoughts on India? And do you think Prime Minister Modi has been a success in terms of reforming that economy? Well, certainly his move to demonetize the economy was controversial at the time. You read a lot of people saying that it was a failure because they didn't get the benefit in terms of black money disappearing from the economy that was expected. But actually, we think that the real significance of the whole demonetization was much more in terms of moving as much of the economy as possible into, if you like, the the digital era and the very fact that people were forced to open bank accounts the very fact that they've brought in a GST, the very fact that the ID system in India is probably one of the most comprehensive in the world. So the whole economy has shifted onto a much more 
formal basis from the old days of an informal cash-based economy. I think that's of much greater longer-term significance for the Indian economy than this whole, you know, were they successful in rooting out black money? So when we think about where India is today, clearly the economy has taken a bit of a hit in the short term. But when I look out on a three to five year time horizon, I'm actually pretty optimistic about the outlook for India. So looking across all these different markets, what parameters do you consider or what information are you looking for to help you decide which markets you want to be exposed to? Well, as we were talking about earlier on, we clearly start with a top-down view in terms of how do we see individual countries. But when you look at the asset class from a bottom-up standpoint, it's very important to have a consistent methodology of looking at companies. That's why we have this five-year expected return methodology, which gives us an output that is consistent across all companies. So we have a US dollar number for all the companies under our coverage, which is more than 900 companies today. So that makes it much easier to compare a company in China with a company in Brazil because you're looking at them on exactly the same framework. So you can very easily say this company is more or less attractive than a company in a different industry or a different country because we're looking at them on a consistent basis. That's a huge help in terms of effective stock selection across the emerging market universe. Another common theme and interest of investors in the marketplace, Richard, is environmental, social, and governance, or ESG issues. Can you tell us how ESG is incorporated into your team's process? I mentioned earlier on that we think in terms of a five-year expected return. So we have a relatively long investment time horizon. And one of the things that we've learned over the last 20, 25 years of investing in emerging markets is that companies that cut corners, companies that don't pursue sustainable policies generally don't turn out to be very successful investments. So when we think about a company, ESG is actually a very important part of that discussion because we care about not just where the company is going to be in six months' time, we care about where it's going to be in five years' time and 10 years' time. And all our experience teaches us that companies that have better approaches to sustainability and corporate governance will generally give you a better return over the long term than companies that take a very short-term approach to business. Terrific. So Richard, one final question. We've heard from other experts in this series on the subject of the move that emerging markets have already had. What do you say to investors who think they've missed the move? I think it's always tempting to look back and think, well, I wish I'd bought the market six months ago. History, as I said earlier on, would suggest that the emerging market asset class is cyclical. The cycles tend to last for several years. It's quite unusual to have a situation where the market goes up one year and then goes down a lot the next year. However, the other point that I think is very important that people understand is emerging markets is a volatile asset class. We are highly likely to have a correction at some point in the next six to nine months. 
that would be consistent with the history of the asset class. My basic view is that unless we see a dramatic change in circumstances, which goes back to the comments I was making earlier on about the dollar, unless you see the US dollar going up very dramatically, a sell-off in the asset class would, in my view, be a buying opportunity. Thank you for joining us on Insights. My pleasure. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. If you have any feedback to provide, please submit feedback on our website. The company and stock names mentioned in this podcast are not to be interpreted as a recommendation to buy or sell. The use of the above companies is in no way an endorsement for J.P. Morgan Asset Management Investment Management Services. This podcast was recorded on September 26, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks— The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 2011-20355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. 
in Australia to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.